Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. Our economy is strong and growing. We have challenges in Alberta and Saskatchewan with changes in the resource sector. But the view is positive. The deficit is $7 billion bigger than Liberals promised. Well, we've certainly heard the request from the provinces. We need to take a look at what's being proposed. And our communities, our homelands are facing something that's very dark. You have people who they feel so desperate that they take their lives. It's been a busy week for Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau. On Monday, he released the fall fiscal update, revealing a much deeper deficit than expected. The current projected numbers show that Canada is expected to be in the red this year to the tune of $26.6 billion. That's about $7 billion more than was expected. And that doesn't include most election promises the Liberals made. Later in the week, Morneau sat down with his provincial counterparts who are demanding changes to the fiscal stabilization program and want more health care spending. Here's what some of those provincial counterparts had to say about the meeting. Well, I was uh, very satisfied with a robust, quite fra frank discussion. Um, very, um, you know, genuinely thankful to the other provinces who, who supported our position on fiscal stabilization. Um, but, you know, time will tell. Uh, I can't uh, overemphasize the fact that uh, timing is important here. Each of the provinces and territories have supported us today. I'm absolutely certain we'll see uh, a refined program. I think there is a united front on the health uh, expenditures. And the minister is engaged around the 5.2% uh, increase. Uh, that's, uh, that is about delivering the core service that we have today. Joining me now from Toronto is Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Minister, thank you for joining us. It's great to be on your show, Mercedes. Let's start with the chat you've been having with premiers and finance ministers from across the country. They've been asking you for more money, in particular in the form of the Fiscal Stabilization Fund. And they're asking for three things, for you to set a lower limit for provinces to qualify, to take off the cap per capita in terms of the dollar amount provinces qualify for for each person in their province, and also to look at retroactive payments to the provinces dating back a couple of years. I know that you have officials looking at this, but when are you expecting to have an answer from them on whether or not you'll be accepting the province's requests? As you point out, uh, a review of the fiscal stabilization approach, that, that approach that we've had now for, for many years, was at the top of the list. The request was, as you say, for those, uh, those three items to be considered. Uh, in answer to your question, we're going to do that analysis. I committed to the finance ministers that we would take their, their idea and how we could review that. We'd do the analysis to look at the fiscal implications, and then I'd get back to them soon. And what I told them soon meant from my perspective was in January that we'd be able to get back to them at least with the timeline and the process that we're going to go through. So uh, the work starts now, and I'm looking forward to having that uh, continuing discussion. The retroactive part in particular is the part that a lot of provinces really want, but it could cost the federal government billions of dollars. How seriously are you considering that part of the request, given these provinces are saying, and look, it's Christmas time, this is really urgent, we have people in need? It's really premature for me to answer that question. We need to take a look at what the request is. I really literally got the uh, suggestion uh, or the the document that they gave me on Tuesday. So we're, we're at the beginning stages of our analysis. 
there was never an expectation that we would be able to have an answer immediately. But we will look at that, and we, uh, we are going to be seriously considering the uh, request. That's what a commitment uh, means from our standpoint, and I'm looking forward to getting back to them. I also know that there are other things that the provinces are interested in us looking at, which is normally the case of these, uh, of these meetings, and we'll be looking at, at those requests as well. So uh, there's more to say in this, but until we've done the analysis, we, we really can't get to any conclusions. Well, and I imagine some of those are things like health transfers. That's something the provinces have brought up. But your government's going to be facing a lot of financial demands. You're cutting taxes as per your campaign promise. But at the same time, you're facing a serious situation with the Canadian economy. Growth dropped, the GDP dropped, pardon me, 1.3% uh, in the last quarter. In Alberta, the unemployment rate for young men is at 20%. Um, you're looking at a deficit that is ballooning and going much higher than what you were expected to. It's about $7 billion beyond what you projected in your March budget. We're now looking at if you add in the campaign promises on top of that, which are worth anywhere between 9 and $15 billion, more than $40 billion in deficit. How do you maintain Canada's AAA credit rating as you've been tasked to when you are in a fiscal situation like this? Well, that's a lot of things you just said, Mercedes. I, I think I should bring it back to a high level for people. Uh, first of all, our economy is strong and growing. We, we do these fiscal forecasts with the help of, of outside private sector economists. We had 14 economists take a look at our uh, economy and give us their sense of where we're going. All of them are projecting growth. Uh, we're projecting next year to be growing at the second fastest level among G7 countries. And with respect to our approach, I mean, not only are we reducing our debt as a function of the economy over time, we're also reducing our deficit as a function of our economy. You know, I had the opportunity yesterday to be in Washington and met with Stephen Mnuchin, the U.S. Treasury Secretary. And, you know, when we talked about this, I pointed out that our approach, you know, modest deficits that are helpful for our economy at around 1% of, of GDP is very different than the American approach, which is currently around 5% of, of GDP. So, so we're going to continue to invest. The first and most important step that we've taken as a government is giving money back to people, so reducing taxes. And that's, that's significant because it's going to be $3 billion more in people's pockets next year. And that's, that's going to help 20 million Canadians, and it's, and it's $6 billion more when it's fully folded in in 2023. But when you talk to some of the big bank economists, Minister, they say this government does not have a great fiscal outlook. They don't have a lot of room to maneuver if something happens. There's not a lot of slack here. Kevin Page, who's the former parliamentary budget officer, said this is a weak plan because you're cutting taxes. At the same time, you're looking at spending more. There's only one option, and that goes into a bigger deficit. Are you concerned that you don't have a lot of room to maneuver? Uh, of course, there will always be demands. So uh, in our situation where we're trying to meet up to a declining amount of debt as a function of our economy and trying to make sure we continue to make investments, there will be demands that will be important for us to consider how we, how we appropriately deal with them. <clears throat> as, a, as a finance minister, uh, there's always going to be a situation where there's more demands than there is available uh, funds. That's the nature of the role. And I'm confident that we can continue to deliver on behalf of Canadians, focusing on growth, focusing on employment, and thinking about what actually matters to people. So the idea that we're reducing their taxes is important, but the idea that we've uh, found a way together with Canadians to have the strong employment and wage growth, 
that's what really matters to people and when they're thinking about how they whether they're dealing with their their situation right now at the holiday season or you know facing up to the challenges of raising their families but you do have limited supply and, and an awful lot of demands demands for you to meet the promises on things like national pharmacare which could cost billions of dollars that the opposition is going to be pressuring you for uh, demands from the provinces who are in some cases in very real crisis asking for that money demands to keep that credit rating at the same time how do you prioritize among making sure you keep us on track as a country in terms of the debt to gdp ratio and yet at the same time meeting those demands this is always the challenge. Uh, we can't just do one thing, so we do need to do these things together. I think among the things you just talked about, obviously the idea of dealing with our, our approach to fiscal stabilization is something that we're, we're on right now, and that's the commitment I made to the provincial finance ministers. The uh, objective of maintaining a strong fiscal track that enables us to be not only having a AAA credit rating, but a declining net debt to GDP and, and the capacity to deal with any future economic challenges. You know, these are all objectives that we are going to ensure that we meet and uh, the issue will be appropriately prioritizing uh, the things that we need to do. We've said though that uh, some key priorities are essential. We've said that we want to make sure that uh, Canadians feel safe and that we deal with ensuring that they're healthy. So. Healthcare is going to be important. It was important in the campaign. Uh, Canadians know that uh, access to pharmaceuticals is uh, is you know is not where it should be in our country. So we're going to continue to work on a universal approach to pharmacare. Uh, so we we have we have many things uh, that we want to do, Mercedes. They're all uh, they're all important, and um, I'm looking forward to getting at that in the new year. Minister Morneau, is there a red line for you on how deep into deficit your government is willing to go? I, I think you've seen our fiscal update. So our projection is that we we will have a declining amount of deficit, and that we will have a declining amount of debt as a function of our economy. Uh, we've also said that there's a need for us to continue investing. So so that projection is probably the frame that you should use as you think about what we're going to try and achieve. Does that mean you'd be willing to go into deficit beyond forty billion dollars? What I'm saying is our government's approach is exactly what we've laid out. Uh, you know, the hypotheticals about what uh, might or might not happen in the future are very, uh, very dependent on, on where we go in the economy. We expect strong growth. That'll allow us to continue to make these investments. And, uh, you know, what we've said our, our important criteria for success are is a declining net debt to GDP, is a AAA credit rating, and is having the capacity in the case of need to deal with it while we continue to invest. So, so those, are, those are the important uh, uh, fiscal anchors that we've, uh, we've maintained and we're going, to, uh, we're going to continue to maintain them. Okay, that's not a no. Minister, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thanks very much. From Attawapiskat to Makwasegwagan, you've heard the reports. You look at our young people, you know, who are so desperate and they feel so lost and unwanted that they take their own lives to stop their pain. We've seen the images and the pain of the loss of so many young Indigenous lives taken early by suicide. Suicide amongst Canada's Indigenous people is high. A recent report from Statistics Canada shows that the rate of suicide among Indigenous Canadians is three times the number of that of Canada's non-Indigenous people. Please, let's do something. Let's quit losing lives. 
We, should, we all love children. We should all try to save them. Indigenous young men and indigenous boys are particularly overrepresented in the statistics of death by suicide. So why are so many of them dying so young? Joining me now to discuss this important issue is Senator Patrick Brazo. Senator, thank you for coming on the show. Good Senator to you and thank you for having me. This is something you've had a very painful and personal experience with. You are a survivor. You had a suicide attempt. Can you tell us a little bit about what led to you feeling that way in your experience? Well, essentially, uh, you know, to make a long story short, I had, uh, I had a good upbringing. I had great parents. Uh, uh, you know, they taught me a lot of good principles and morals. But, uh, you know, when I lost, uh, when I lost my job uh, back in 2013, uh, you know, I basically, uh, uh, you know, I had no more money. I had no more self-esteem. My uh, my ego was uh, was shattered, and I took it very hard. Uh, and I not, never thought that uh, I would have even had contemplated uh, having thoughts of uh, committing suicide. But uh, but I did, and I hit rock bottom. And uh, luckily, uh, I I, uh, I didn't succeed. When you look at the suicide rates for Indigenous men, Indigenous boys, and Indigenous people writ large, I uh, just want to highlight some for our viewers, because it's pretty astounding. For First Nations people, it is three times higher rate than for non-Indigenous people. For Inuit people, it is nine times higher. For Métis, two times higher. It is highest among people between the ages of 15 and 24, and in particular, Indigenous men and Indigenous boys. What are the factors that are driving this tragic situation? Well, there are many factors, and uh, as a matter of fact, 75% uh, of suicides are committed by men. Uh, and so, after the experience, experiences that I uh, underwent and uh, what I went through, uh, you know, I went to rehab uh, several times, and I got to meet a lot of people who had uh, mental problems and addictions uh, issues and whatnot. Um, and it's at that moment that uh, I had decided that I was going to try to do something uh, for these people. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was, uh, I was out in Edmonton talking to uh, young First Nations children last week, um, in between uh, grade 7 and 11. And, um, you know, it, it went well, and I, I shared my story, and I shared how uh, there can be hope, uh, regardless of what the problems that people may uh, go through. Um, and just as a side note, um, uh, two of the educators, uh, after I, ca I came back from Edmonton last week, uh, wrote to me and said, uh, after and because of my speech, that there's a, a young student who uh, actually reached out for help. And so the educators uh, took that person in and now uh, are trying, uh, you know, the best that they can to, uh, to offer that help. But again, it, it's just, you know, w w we as humans, we go through um, a lot of struggles, and, and, and men in particular, I believe, because... Uh, I'm speaking for myself. Uh, you know, I was taught to be strong. I was taught to be competitive. I was, I was taught not to uh, to show emotion growing up. Um, but then, when I started having problems, I was uh, I felt guilty and I felt ashamed to to ask for help. Uh, and it's only after many years of of, uh, of struggling that I did reach out for help and I got the help that I needed. And uh, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm better today. And I think we have to address something that your critics would say, and, and this is not going to be a surprise to you, but people say, look, he was, he pled guilty to assault. I doubt his credibility. Is he serious on this issue? How did that play into your decision to get more involved, and what do you say to your critics? Well, I, I don't uh, pay attention to my critics anymore. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, 10 years ago when I was named to the Senate, 
Uh, I wanted things to move rapidly. I wanted to get things done, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. And I found out uh, uh, the rough way that uh, life doesn't work like that either. We have to be patient. We have to let things uh, unfold, and we have to work at things in order to to make changes. And so, you know, I look at all the indigenous peoples. I look at the the North Shore in, in Labrador, the suicides of indigenous peoples that took place there in Saskatchewan, and and. You know, every life matters, and uh, unfortunately, governments, um, you know, they offer uh, assistance and perhaps funding uh, after serious tragedies. But uh, what are we doing collectively as a society to to try and prevent a, as many of those tragedies uh, as possible before they actually occur? And so, this is what I'm trying to do. And um, as a matter of fact, I've uh, I've um, uh, I got involved with a, a new foundation in Montreal called the Aquarium Foundation, made up of uh, you know some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists uh, you know in Montreal and perhaps even in the country because uh, you know they want to help uh, you know with situations like these, but it's also a question of resources. And so I don't have all the answers, but I do have experience in this matter. You know, after I tried uh, unsuccessfully two suicide attempts, um, you know, I, I, I don't question myself anymore. I'm doing this because I care about people. And like I said, every lives matter, but in particular, uh, First Nations lives matter. And uh, we have to take care of the most vulnerable citizens uh, in this country. And uh, it's, it's alarming to me that in the entire world, the highest rate of suicide are in our Arctic communities. We are in Canada. Uh, and why aren't we doing more to try and help these children? Because they need hope. And unfortunately, many of these children, First Nations, Indigenous children, are, are in remote areas where they can't access services. What would you like to see done in terms of providing hope, providing psychological and psychiatric services, and the kind of supports that these people, the, these young people in particular, need, but more broadly that Indigenous Canadians need? When we're talking about Indigenous uh, kids and boys and men and indigenous peoples at large, uh, some, some of these people don't have access because they're in remote communities. Some, you know, some communities you have to fly in to, uh, to, to reach a particular community. And so what I would like to see, because I, I did introduce a motion in the Senate uh, for a Senate uh, committee to, um, to study issues of mental health and suicide prevention, uh, is to have the resources, the financial resources available and the resources on the ground and for people to have easy access to, to help if they need it. I've surrounded myself with people who are uh, a lot more experts than I am, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I see this as, uh, as, my, uh, as a new calling for myself. Well, Senator Brazo, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. As we end the show today, we wanted to take a moment to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Holiday Season from all of us here at the West Block. And with that, it's time for one of our favorite annual holiday traditions, the reading of a Christmas story by MPs on Parliament Hill. This year, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was the day before Christmas, and all through the hills, the reindeer were playing, enjoying the spills. While every so often, they'd stop to call names. But one little deer was not allowed to their games. Ha ha, look at Rudolph, his nose is a sight. It's red as a beet, twice as big, twice as bright. While Rudolph just wept, 
What else could he do? He knew that the things they were saying were true. Although he was lonesome, he always was good, obeying his parents as good reindeer should. While way, way up north on some foggy night, old Santa was packing his sleigh for its flight. This fog, he complained, will be hard to get through. He shook his round head and his tummy shook too. Just think how the boys' and girls' faith would be shaken if he didn't reach them before they awaken. Come Dasher, come Dancer, come Prancer and Vixen. Come Comet and Cupid, come Donner and Blitzen. At each house first noting the people who live there, he quickly selected the right presents to give there. By midnight, however, the last light had fled, for even big people had then gone to bed. He really was worried for what would he do if folks started waking before he was through. The air was still foggy, the night dark and drear, when Santa arrived at the home of the deer. But all this took time and filled Santa with gloom, while slowly he groped towards the next reindeer's room. The door he'd just opened went to his surprise. A dim but quite definite light met his eyes. The light wasn't burning, the glow came instead from something that lay at the head of the bed. And there lay, but wait now, what do you suppose? The glow, you've guessed it, was Rudolph's red nose. Poor Santa's sad tale of distress and delay, the fog and the darkness, and losing the way. The horrible fear that some children might waken before his complete Christmas trip had been taken, and you, he told Rudolph, may yet save the day. Your wonderful forehead may yet pave the way. So Rudolph broke out into such a grin, it almost connected his ears to his chin. So Rudolph pranced out through the door and took his proud place at the head of the sleigh. The rest of the night, well, what would you guess? Old Santa's idea was a brilliant success. Whenever it's foggy and gray, it's Rudolph the Red Nose who guides Santa's sleigh. Be listening this Christmas, but don't make a peep, because that late at night, children should be asleep. You may hear them call as they drive out of sight. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Mm -hmm.